Hello friends, my name is Jumont McGowan and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. Today my guest is Joan Bone, the former executive finance director at the Walt Disney Company and now at Social Innovation Incorporated. A born and bred Los Angelino, she now resides in Paris, France. Our conversation came just as she left the Walt Disney Company after 28 years. Her roles there included distribution and film acquisitions to merchandise licensing. We get into it in the pod, but she felt the time was right for a new challenge. A challenge she really first started five years ago at Disney with the creation of the Disney Network, which is to help dyslexic employees realize their full potential. And it was when she was engaged in this work that really she was her most happiest professionally. It was the most rewarding time of her professional life, which is exactly why she's taking on a new challenge with Social Innovation Incorporated. In her words, she's not going to be reinventing the wheel, but aiming to help businesses pick the low-hanging fruit in order to ensure all their employees reach their full potential. As always, this is a podcast to support the incredible work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They've done and continue to do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. I was very excited to speak to Joan not only because of her work at Disney, but because of what's to come, the future that she'll be engaged with at Social Innovation Incorporated, how she can help businesses to really help their employees fulfill their full potentials and overcome any learning difficulties that they have. It's a great episode and I'm very excited for you to hear it. So here it is. Joan, bonjour. Bonjour, Jude. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very, very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so I want to kick off by asking you, I want to get the scoop then on what your new venture is. You've just left Disney uh, after a number of years. We'll get into how long and, and how much of a seismic uh, job that was for you. Um, but what, what's new? Where are you now? Yeah, so thank you for asking. Yeah, it is, it's a big chapter uh, and change in my life professionally and really thanks to what I was able to work on the last few years at Disney. But my, um, my new direction is in social innovation and it really is the intersection between business and impact and more specifically um, with regards to diversity and inclusion. I have been able to see great things over the last few years but with the project that I worked on, but also others from afar and I realized that, you know, companies can do a lot in this space, and it's actually quite interesting for their business and their employees and their customers. So this is really the, the bandwagon that I want to get on. And so I'm re- really, really excited about this. And um, yeah, so I'm just starting off. Wonderful. Well, can, can we unpack that practically? So, so, so what will that do? What, what is the effect that you're hoping to have in this new space? Yeah, so basically, you know, social innovation is really about um, using the social challenges that we have at stake and and baking those into the business that that we have day to day. So at a company like Disney, um, you know, we could look at our our products and our services and adapt those to different markets or and specifically regarding diversity and inclusion, looking at the different cultures that fall within. So there's a whole range of 
of enhancements that we can do for products factoring in disabilities, for example, but also cultures. Um, we're not necessarily making all of our product, products to, to speak to the different cultures. And I think there's a lot we can do there. But more importantly, I think this is not something that big corporations are going to do from the very top and drive that down. I think this is going to come from the bottom up. People mm. coming to the table with the idea saying, you know what, as a kid, we experienced this and I didn't get that. And it would be great if we could tweak this product or this service to factor this this need and, and it would make it, by the way, not only great for this group that I'm talking about, but probably really cool for a lot of other people as well. Absolutely. So if I have this right, uh, an example might be when you're at Disney, Moana, for example, which uh, was featured heavily Polynesian culture and it, and it used uh, predominantly Polynesian actors and it was about um, a culture that, you know, um, ordinarily I, I, I'm quite ignorant of. Um, it would be... Uh, I, I would assume the work to start that was: Are we observing the the uh, respectfully the the culture we're trying to represent? What are the voices we're going to use um, in order to uh, properly tell this story? Things of things of that nature. Absolutely. I mean, that, that Moana is an excellent example, um, and exactly for the reason that you stated, because it's going to be told very truthfully, authentically. And I think another great great example is Coco. Um, yes. You know, in the United States, I mean, that was such a huge and important film because it really did reveal a side of the Mexican culture that a lot of yes. people don't know. And I mean, I found it so touching on many levels. I mean, having oh, yeah. grown up in a Mexican-American family, my mother is first generation, uh, and knowing very little about that whole ritual that, that happens around, around death. And mm. that really opened my eyes to this amazing way of looking at death and being able to talk to children about it. So not only did we learn a lot about this Mexican culture, this particular aspect of it, but we were able to bring this up with children and saying, look, this is how we're going to stay connected to our family in the future. So, you know, by just telling this great story, we were able to unpack death. I mean, how, how great is that? I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's an incredible film for anybody who hasn't seen it. But I, what I loved about it was the timing as well. I think it came out in, what, 2017 or 2018, right at the thrust of your, your previous president attempting to construct a wall to divide two nations. And it really was a celebration of Mexico and, as you say, of, of death as well, um, of, of how it is viewed as a, a part of life and how present the people are who leave us, um, the, the indelible mark they leave on people's lives. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the timing was pretty good, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, well, let's let's jump back in time because this is what we dyslexics do. You know, we jump around, we go <laughs> lateral. Um, you're a Los Angelino, originally. Indeed. Um, with Mexican heritage, wonderful. Um, how was that? How was growing up in, in, in that? quite um, insane place? Well, so being in Los Angeles, we do have a pretty big Mexican-American community. And I wasn't really part of that per se. Um, my mother's Mexican-American, but my father is not. So we were kind of just this mm. American, this mix. Although my family uh, on my mother's side, you know, was very much Mexican-American, uh, immigrants from Mexico. And so that side of my life, going to all of the family gatherings, because they were also in Southern California, was really around the whole Mexican uh, vibe. So music and food and culture and everything. So that was really cool. Um, a lot of people didn't realize that because, you know, I don't, I don't really look Mexican per se. So it was a bit strange to mm. tell people that were outside of my close circle 
they would say to me, oh, you just, you don't look Mexican. But any, in any case, you know, I definitely live that and I love it. And Mexican food is still my favorite food. Oh, so good. So, so good. Yes, indeed. So it is something I learned how to cook pretty young and uh, taught my children as well how to cook it. So this, this happens to be their favorite food as well, despite living in France, the food capital of the world. Yeah, I mean, it is saying something. I mean, we, well, that is a debate I do love to get into because um, I don't know whether you've spent time in London at all, but certainly over the last 10 years, because we don't have a a cultural heritage in terms of food, you know, it's it's all like pies <laughs> you know we don't have um that sort of baggage culturally so we're very we're getting towards a more american you know we have every food culture here um certainly in london and places like liverpool and manchester um uh whereas the french are of course very proud of their cuisine um but they they're sometimes quite limited to that you know and observing it as a as a cultural heritage um so I think in terms of eating, you can get better variation in London. Could be could be controversial, but this is my uh, feeling. You know what? I have to agree with you. Um, you know, and it's it's always the case. If you do something really well, you don't tend to do a lot of other things well because you can really focus on that. And you know, and no no offense at all to the the great French cuisine, but it mm. has meant that they've been able to satisfy their palate, you know, pretty easily with this wide range of of food that the French uh, cuisine provides. The United States is exactly like what you described in London, and we have always had these different cultures of food and therefore a great variety of great cuisines. And, you know, I really love that because I, you know, I love Chinese food and Indian food and, mm. you know, we're able to get all of that as well. And, um, you know, as maybe a little side, I mean, that's like the first step in, in, into understanding another culture is by their food. So I think that's, that's pretty cool. Um, it's a cool aspect of living in the United States anyway. It absolutely is. I wonder whether or not that's your thinking at Disney that um, the the most effective way to tell a story simply or to, to communicate an idea is through song and through food because everybody eats and everyone and, and singing is a way to access empathy very, very quickly um, as opposed to long drawn out arguments or podcasts, for example, <laughs> which might not <laughs> which might not change people's minds, but um, a good meal. Um, and and a song can certainly go some way to, you know, breaching divides and chasms, which have certainly been thrown up all over the Western world in the last five, six years. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, music is so important. You don't have to understand the language. You just have to, you know, go with the melody. And and if you if you like the vibe, you know, you can really feel the song. I mean, I so agree with that. It's very inclusive, isn't it? You don't have to mm. speak the language. And food is the same thing, I mean, unless you have allergies, of course. But it is a way uh, <laughs> to, and it's it's like a starting point. And, and this is what I, you know, always tell my kids is like, you know, this is the first, you know, before we go to that particular country, let's try food. So you can kind of just get a feel for for what we're going to be having over there. So couldn't agree more with you on that point. Yeah, but it put it puts me in mind of um, so I I lived for a year in China. I was doing a show over there in Shanghai, and um, uh, I I didn't know I was ignorant of um, uh, the fact that uh, Mulan was quite controversial, the original one, you know, not the remake, because there were certain things culturally that they didn't feel like they had properly. Um, were faithfully rendered onto the screen, but every single one of them knew and loved the songs. So I'd sing the songs in English um, because, you know, uh, that's that's the way I am. Um, I'm a uh, massive musical theatre uh, geek, um, deep down, closeted. Um, <laughs> uh, and 
and, and so the power of those songs remained, even though there were certain things that you know that, that, that they didn't like. They were they they still really loved the songs and connected with the lyrics of the songs. Um, I think I think certainly from what I've heard, the the, re, the live action remake certainly was a huge success over in uh, over in China. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love to see that myself. In fact, yes. Um, so I would love to talk uh, about your new social intervention that, that you're now engaged with. Um, how is it then that you're going to take the, the work and the expertise that you accrued over at Disney to this new venture? Yeah, so five years ago, um, I had a pretty amazing thing happen at the company. There was a call for social impact projects in Europe. And France and the UK were the, were the pilot offices. And, um, you know, I had this idea come to mind, which is basically a combination of, of all of my experience being a parent and being, a, you know, a finance exec, which is, you know, my, my day job and all of my, my training and most of my career. Um, I came up with an idea that we could empower dyslexics by just making additional more innovative products um, and, and a messaging that was more positive around dyslexia. And basically, as a parent, um, I, you know, I struggled quite a bit in the French school system. We're Franco-American. And, you know, it was tough to get my son through through the school system. And he's, you know, he's 16 today. And every every year is a different year. So, you know, it's just one year at a time. But, you know, at those very early days, it was quite quite daunting, um, all of this. And I learned so much about dyslexia thanks to reading books that were published in the U.S. that really talked about the positive side of dyslexia and that, you know, it was just a brain processing thing. And yes, there were challenges that, you know, you could get on top of, but what was more exciting uh, and pretty uh, amazing were all of these strengths that, you know, most people had not really heard of or did not associate anyway with dyslexic. So, you know, this was kind of my backdrop and the way I was sort of approaching dyslexia with my son. And, um, you know, I, that was just there. And then this challenge came up uh, when he was nearly 10 years old, so five years into his diagnosis and us sort of managing and navigating dyslexia. And um, I put together just a small little, you know, 250-word uh, pitch explaining, um, you know, what we could do at Disney, that it was low-hanging fruit, essentially. I wasn't reinventing the wheel, and, and that kind of um, that kind of got me started. And, you know, it's, it's exactly the example of the social innovation that I want to go into, that I am going into right now, and that it's, it's putting together the social challenge of dyslexia together with the business, um, the business strengths uh, and assets of Disney. And, um, you know, very, very basically, I mean, there were books that we could make at Disney that were dyslexia-friendly and more engaging for dyslexics. Uh, and, and the very first book that we put together in that group, and thanks to my publishing department, so I wasn't doing this all on my, on my own. I was working with the teams in the different departments to help get this product off the, off the ground. But, you know, the first thing I wanted to do had, had surrounded books and, you know, dyslexics have, have difficulty reading. I mean, you know, those that, that get identified quite early will learn to read, but it becomes a challenge. Um, you know, it's just very tiring. So I really wanted some engaging mm -hmm. books for the young children. So we were able to put together this fantastic ebook with an outside uh, e-publisher in France. And it basically provides all of the functionality that, you know, one could ask for. 
allowing for a different font, different sizing and spacing, syllable cuts to allow for better pronunciation, um, definition of, of different words because dyslexics tend to be poor in vocabulary because they don't, don't read enough. And, mm. you know, because it was an ebook, we had some, um, some audio features as well. And so this was like, wow, I mean, here's this great book and, and we got it all together. And, you know, as I was doing that, you know, which I used my son and he was like my guinea pig, you know, so what do you think of this? And, you know, he was quite funny and in and, and helping me put it together. But what I realized after showing that product around is that that book, although designed for dyslexics, was really an inclusive book. It was an inclusive product. A product for, say, uh, because it was in French, young children in England that might be learning French as their first foreign language. Mm. And because you had all that functionality, you had all of those tools in there to help with the pronunciation. And, you know, so it really got me thinking about this way of designing uh, products with this, with this filter in mind. And I truly believe that if all companies made their products and services dyslexia-friendly, they would be making things so much better for everyone because they would be putting that additional functionality in, which helps, of course, dyslexics, but it's going to help those non-native speakers because we love all of that. As a, as a non-native speaker of French, you know, I love having subtitles um, when I'm listening to somebody because sometimes the words are a bit muffled um, and any kind of additional, additional help that I can have. But, um, you know, basically a lot of functionality that, that could help people. So I, I do look at the, you know, the world through uh, dyslexia-friendly glasses because I do think we can solve um, a lot of pain. And mm. besides dyslexics, there are, there are the people with other disabilities that could benefit. And there's dyspraxia and, um, and uh, dysorthographia uh, and different things, um, different learning differences like that that also benefited from these tools. Absolutely. So... Um, it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume, but I, I think I, I know the answer, uh, that um, the, the moment, the aha moment when you got the diagnosis for your son that he was dyslexic, um, was that, that must have been a huge turning point in your personal thinking because, of course, you have a dog in a fight. This is, this is personal. You know, how do I help my son um, to maximize his potential in, in a classroom environment where um, it, it's not suited to his to him learning uh, uh, as quickly as other children. Um, what was that like? Was there a specific moment? Was it at the point of diagnosis? When was it then that you, you, it sort of empowered you with this energy to um, to, to start uh, addressing this? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. Loaded and great question. And, you know, basically when I learned my son was dyslexic, you know, I was quite uh, devastated and I was very frightened um, because... Up until that point, the very little that I knew about dyslexia was not a good story, and it was coming from my entourage in France. Uh, children of friends and colleagues that had uh, dyslexics that, that they had to manage through the school system, and I wasn't hearing really great stuff, so I was really frightened. And, you know, I had mentioned that I kind of threw myself into some books in English, and I came across uh, a couple of wonderful books. You know, the first one was called Overcoming Dyslexia. I think it's not a great name for a book, but talks really about, you know, the strength side. And it was so fascinating. And it's written by this one, this doctor out of Yale University. So it wasn't, you know, just any small university. And then the other groundbreaking book for me was Dyslexic Advantage, which was written by two doctors in the U.S. as well, talking really about the strengths. And that was my kind of aha moment that, 
wow. I mean, I, I just really need to focus on nurturing these things. Of course, I need to help him with, with the challenges like reading and spelling and possibly getting some tutor in because I can. And I appreciate not everybody can do that. But it was really about how can I nurture his strengths? And so, you know, from the get-go, he was just so into playing with Legos. Um, so I got him into different activities with regard to building. I saw that he, you know, picked up some kind of coding stuff. So I put him in coding classes also when he was in primary school. Um, music also is another thing that we have in our household. My daughter was, was very much into music in her own band. And so I got him started as well, playing, playing the drums. And, you know, he still continues that today. He loved basketball. So basically I was pushing all of these areas that I thought could stimulate him that focused on his strengths and that built his confidence because that's what I learned at the end of the day is that if you, if you believe in yourself, then you'll be able to move forward, even if it's tough and you need those extracurriculars to be able to keep you going and realize that, yeah, it's, it's, it's painful in school. And yes, I need to do extra work and I can get through it, but I know I'm really good in these things. And, you know, by the way, um, I'm, I'm really creative and I'm probably going to go to design school or, or, or something, um, you know, become an engineer and that sort of thing. So it really was an evolution, but it was groundbreaking to, to read those books. And, you know, maybe just to add is that I read those books in English. These books are not translated necessarily in French or any other language. And I think this is something that would help tremendously other countries be able to get on top of dyslexia in a positive way and get that positive vibe going. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it was part of your thinking, because you are obviously in a very fortunate position, um, you've, you've had a, a successful career, you, you can absolutely uh, uh, push your son into extracurricular activities and, and, and have tutors. It was part of your thinking, what about those children who, who aren't fortunate enough to have a parent like yourself who can push them into finding other things which they can take heart from, that they can gain confidence in, that, that you were going to set up these initiatives within Disney and the, the present venture you have now um, to help children who aren't as fortunate? Well, you know, I think that one really important thing to do that doesn't cost any money is to be able to share with your child, you know, all of those positive things about dyslexia and actually point out those people that, that succeeded with dyslexia. I mean, you know, that's the other great thing <laughs> when you start diving into dyslexia. You're just like, wow, I cannot believe um, all of these famous people are dyslexic, you know, like Richard Branson, for example, Steven Spielberg. I mean, many people in the entertainment industry, but also uh, scientists and, you know, all kinds of, of artists and engineers. And, you know, it just goes just goes on and on. So I think, you know, for me, that was really key to explain that to my son. And I think just that alone, you know, was was really the fuel for his fire, because as I was working on my project and he, you know, was there as my my, my consultant, if you will, um, you know, I remember at one point thinking, God, you know, I never asked him how he felt about being dyslexic. <laughs> so I thought, oh, God, I'm going to ask him, what is he going to say? What is he going to say? You know, thinking that he was going to say something that might be a little hard to hear. And he said to me, he goes, oh, no, I, um, yeah, I think there are actually a lot of things that dyslexics can do. So it really paid off me just telling mm -hmm. him about all the possibilities he had and that there was no line of work or profession without getting into those big words, because for a 10-year-old, you know, what's a profession? But really showing yes. him that the sky was the limit and all of that, you know, made him feel great. In fact, he asked me if he could take my pitch, 
my PowerPoint pitch <laughs> and share it at school. And I thought that was brilliant. You know, I thought if every dyslexic kid could go to their school and just show people, you know, the virtues of having dyslexic thinking, you know, I think their classmates would just be like, wow, just like, just like I was. Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate. I've, I've mentioned this before, but I vividly remember in the library of my uh, high school, uh, secondary school, uh, there was a poster of Eddie Izzard, who has always been a, a very visual example of a dyslexic who achieved on her own terms and had a brain. This is this is the magnificent thing about the way she constructs uh, jokes in her sets. Uh, they are a, a fascinating example of, of, a, of a dyslexic brain at work that goes here, there and everywhere. And it, and it was something familiar to me. And it is very particular, uh, that, uh, that ability to, <laughs> to set up a visual uh, joke like that in, in this very eccentric, uh, skewed way, sort of a, a side angle way of looking at it. Um, so it's very funny that you mention Eddie. I had the chance of seeing her in Paris and meeting her because she does perform quite often. In fact, a very good friend of mine is her voice coach. Um, I absolutely wanted to meet Eddie for the same reasons that you mentioned. Um, being a dyslexic person and, you know, having this great way of thinking. And so my friend uh, brought me along. We went to the show. Eddie presented it and wove in dyslexia in the bit. So it was hilarious. And, you know, I loved it. And so we had this great opportunity to connect. And, I, and I've seen her a, a number of times in Paris. So, you know, a really great person to have in, in the community. Absolutely. I mean, she's so impressive that she can not only construct a set in English, but then I think she does it in French and German as well. It's, it's just magnificent. And that's pretty, uh, pretty much of an accomplishment given that languages are very, very difficult. Foreign languages are very difficult for dyslexics. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I can only speak to how dyslexia is viewed here and, and, and the attitude has shifted a, a huge amount, even though there is there's still a sort of, um, there is a, a, a small percentage of people who, who sort of believe it's a middle-class affliction. You know, it's just a way of getting an extra time in exams and it's, it's a reason why their child is lazy, which as we know is completely bogus. Uh, but I, I'm shocked that, that in France, um, it's it's not something that's perceived to be as as we say uh, something which can could be a strength. Is it? Is, you feel they have further to go? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that you know what we're seeing in the Anglo-Saxon world, so that includes the United States and, and the UK, but you know other other countries. Um, there's a lot of noise about dyslexia. Uh, famous people being very open about it and, and saying that they have succeeded thanks to their dyslexia. So there's that messaging that's happening from very high up in, in society. And that trickles down. So that is hugely helpful. Um, they're, they're happy to say, um, I am dyslexic. And yeah, I really struggle in school. I cannot spell. Um, yeah, I hate reading. As, I love stories, but I just can't get through a big, big book. And they're okay about it. They own it. What I'm noticing in other other cultures is that that's just not something that people are comfortable saying yet. Um, you know, there is an attachment in France to spelling things correctly because there are just a lot of rules that you need to apply, so irregardless of having dyslexia or not. So for those that are struggling with spelling, you know, they they tend to not want to speak up to say, "Oh God, I, I have a problem spelling." So I think there's a there's some work that needs to be done in France, and this is something that I really want to work on as well as I move forward in, in social innovation. Is how can we change the mindset in France 
uh, and make it, you know, more of a positive vibe. But that needs to start with getting celebrities out there and not just, you know, uh, film talent, but, you know, people uh, in business or in science to say, yeah, I'm dyslexic and I, this is what I did. And I think from there, uh, you know, we can start messaging it in a positive way. And the other thing that it, that really needs to happen is getting those books that I referred to published in French. Um, mm, I, I actually yes. reached out to um, the author of The Dyslexic Advantage, who I've been in contact with for a few years around my project. And uh, she's been very supportive of the work I've done. And I, and I asked her a few weeks ago, I said, you know, how can we get this published in French? She goes, well, it's not something that we actually do on our end, but... Um, definitely, if you can find a publisher to do it, I mean, that would be great. So I'm actually, you know, knocking on doors myself um, to see who could be, you know, which publisher in France would be willing to publish that. I think if France published it uh, in French, um, other neighboring countries like Italy uh, and Germany, if it's not already published there, would do the same. So there is this, you know, getting that momentum going in Europe, and then that could actually lead to other other countries publishing the book as well. So there are some building blocks that need to happen before that positive buzz can can take off. And, and yeah. so we're kind of at the bottom here. Yes. So so what was the support then for for your son at school? Yeah. So my son, um, he saw a reading therapist from the get go. Um, I think you know most children, no matter what country they're in, they they have that sort of support. It's outside the school system, so you actually have to get there, which it's just it's just a bit complicated. But you know he did that early on in primary school, and as he um, moved along in uh, in primary, he was able to get somebody in and help him uh, read some of the the instructions that he had, which was a bit heavy, I have to admit. Um, you know, he needed to be independent and right at the end of primary school, that was the best that we can have is somebody in there to, to really help them, help him, excuse me. Uh, but the goal was to be independent. And so from the very end of primary school, he learned how to type, uh, so that he could go to class with a computer. And, you know, in France, um, you know, if you're dyslexic, you can have those special accommodations to have your computer in class if your school doesn't require those already. I mean, most schools, mm. public schools in France don't do that. So he was able to take notes, uh, and that turned out to be a great thing because his notes, you know, his note-taking and his typing were so much quicker than, than actually writing things down. It was a lot cleaner. He could save it. Yeah. He could reformat it. You know, there were so many advantages to doing that. But the other yeah. thing that he has is extra time and exams, and that's something that, you know, the schools are absolutely willing to do, you know, some, you know, big exams, like in France, there's the baccalaureat that you have at the end of, of the lycée or, or high school. Uh, and, mm. and for that, you need really to have the certification, if you will, that you're dyslexic. So and he does have that. And then he'll have that extra time. And obviously, the, the, yeah, the computer use um, during, during those big, big exams. Right. Well, it, it sounds like uh, it's, it's comparable in terms of the support I got, extra time in exams, access to computer, um, that, that we we have in Britain. So, is, is it? I mean, there the certainly feels like there's an attitude. Um, uh, uh, certainly, you said among your your coworkers that there's um, a feeling that it's a negative as opposed to that they're not being support for people. Yeah, I think it's gotten better for sure. I mean, since I got involved, you know, it's been ten years now that I've been in this space. Um, it, it seems to be better and better. People talk more about disability. Learning disability tends to be part of that conversation. And governments 
um, you know, or, or just a little bit more, more open about the subject. And I think that in, in the school where I have my son out, which is not too far from where we live, I mean, they've been listening to me for 10 years now. And so, you know, you have this group of, of parents that become advocates for these things. And, you know, you do have to approach them very diplomatically and explain what's going on. You don't want to try to explain to them how to do their job. You know, it is it is a fine line, but, you know, they listen to you and they know that you're doing what you can do and what you're saying is coming from, is based on fact and these things help. And thanks to this, he's going to be able to go on to that. So it is, uh, it's a process of, you know, educating without using the word educating, <laughs> educating educators. And I think that uh, as we realize there are more and more children in each class that are being diagnosed, and that's like, you know, two or three per class, easy, which is, you know, 10% easy, um, that they have a few kids they need to look out for. And that's sort of helped uh, helped us move forward. But I think that, you know, on the point you made about, you know, colleagues not feeling they had the support. I mean, when I started doing this project at Disney, you know, I was trying to get this business initiative off the ground. I mean, I saw a need for a product that was not on the market, that was, you know, in, in, you know uh, in, enhanced and, and exciting. But what I didn't expect was, was that I would have people at the office come up to me and say, oh, my, my child is dyslexic. What can I do? So suddenly it became a conversation at the office about what do you recommend? Who's your reading specialist? How many times a week? And so we were actually created this informal support group, um, which I think is fantastic as well, because, I mean, I've certainly felt alone in my corner, didn't know where to start. And, and it was really helpful um, to be able to finally reach out and, and talk to other people about it. So I think that's something that has evolved. And if we're able to bring dyslexia to the workplace, you know, it c- could make a huge impact, not only on the products and services that I mentioned earlier, but you're going to have potentially 10% of your employees that are dyslexic, right? And their children could be dyslexic because it runs in family. So it really becomes this virtuous thing and it moves everybody forward in, in, in a positive way. It does, but it also helps people maximize their potential so that they can give as much to the business or the venture or whatever it is they're they're engaged with. Uh, they can they can fully um, become the best version of themselves that they can possibly be, which can only help a business. Exactly, and and that's even the bigger point, right? And I love that because you know, yes, we need to explain what it is so people are not afraid of it. But more importantly, as you said, we need to leverage these talents. And make sure that, you know, this person's not spending three hours proofreading this huge document when, in fact, they might want to just spend time providing the ideas and and talking through it and probably writing up to the, you know, their ideas down on paper, but really leveraging these skills. I mean, and, you know, if I had my way, we'd have dyslexic think tanks in every company to be able to come Mm. up with some cool and exciting ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the, the, the great shame is, certainly in this country, in terms of the school system, it's set up to reward a certain kind of intelligence. Um, and they reward that type of intelligence. And invariably, they get to the higher parts of business and they just want somebody who doesn't think like them. But they don't have that person in the room because they're, they've time and time again rewarded a certain type of intelligence. Whereas, you know, dyslexics commonly, they, they have a, an enlarged sense of empathy. They're, they're quite emotive. They can be quite creative thinking. And and they would probably be needed in a, in in at some stage of a business. There's also the capacity for for remembering things. I don't know whether your son has this, but I certainly have this as a dyslexic, where I can vividly remember things um, from a few years before. I can, I can <laughs> you, 
recall things in great detail, which would help people in business meetings, you know, to be able to recall a conversation that was had 10 years prior. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've seen that. Um, and I, I absolutely agree that we need to get these people around the table in these meetings and these discussions about how we're going to move something forward. Because in addition to those those strengths that you mentioned, I mean, dyslexics are great out-of-the-box thinkers. And, you know, when you, when you look down at the 21st century skills that one needs, guess who does really well in that group? The dyslexic. Mm. So, you know, you, you, you would be, um, you know, you do a disservice to your future of your company by not getting these, these people who are thinking differently and that have all these skills because this is going to be really what we need in, in the corporate world going forward and in every, you know, facet of, of work and in life. Um, you know, in science and, and everything. So um, definitely it's it's more about leveraging those talents. Yeah. And then, I mean, um, I obviously, uh, I'm not party to conversations that I had in, in big business, uh, but I should assume that, that there's different cultures at every single business. And part of some businesses are dog-eat-dog. Are dog. You know, you've got to outdo your competitor, even though they're your peers. Um do you sense there might be some resistance in some businesses towards the idea that, you know, we've got to help everyone maximize their potential, everyone, you know, in order for the whole company to move forward, then everybody has to be um, you know, firing on all cylinders, working as well as they could? I think that today is 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 a great time for this type of thought. We're seeing more and more people get into that, you know, bring your authentic self to work space, letting our employees really thrive. And they're not necessarily thinking about dyslexia per se, but this is really about bringing your authentic self. So I feel like this is a great time to be looking at this. So dyslexics, you know, it's never been a better time to be dyslexic in that in that space. And I think that companies that don't move forward in that direction will suffer uh, they won't be able to retain talent because other companies will be able to do that. So this is something that companies are starting to take very seriously, <clears throat> and they will be at a competitive advantage vis-a-vis -vis the talent they hire if they, if they don't do that. So I'm pretty hopeful about that. I'm glad. I'm very glad. So let's talk about aspirations moving forward um, because I get a sense of, you know, there's uh, a great ambition here to, to to do some good, to affect a change which will massively benefit people, achieve uh, the best versions of themselves that they can. So so what is it moving forward that you are aspiring to achieve with your new venture? Well, I'm just hoping to bring impact to business. And I'm not saying we need to reinvent the wheel, but what we could do is use all of that talent and all of that invention that we have at any given company to make it better and reach more people and, you know, effectively contribute to society. And, you know, we've seen in the past that, you know, governments have been very much involved in, in tackling these, these societal challenges, and they haven't necessarily made great leaps as much as they've tried and as much money has been sent. I mean, it really needs to be baked into to business. And so I'm really convinced this is not just a nice to do, but a must. It's a must for companies. It's good for them because it will improve their products and services. It will improve, it will in increase employee engagement, because employees are seeking that as well. Um, but And then it'll come back to that, you know, un, uh, unserved market and those products and services that are not really out there today. I mean, if you just take the disability space, for example, I mean, there is 1.8 billion people that fall into that disabled space in the world. 
and they're not getting the, the goods and services that they need or that they want. And this is a great opportunity for companies. And it's a great opportunity for the disabled world so they can experience things just like anybody. So it's, th- it's something that companies can take seriously. And this is what I really want to be part of. And I'm definitely going to continue to work in the dyslexia space because I do think it's, it's a launch pad into this area. Um, and it's because there are so many dyslexics around the world. I mean, we talk about, generally speaking, one out of 10 in the United States, they're even suggesting that it's one out of five. I mean, so that's 20%. That's huge, which means that the vast majority of disabled people, quote unquote, are actually falling in the dyslexia space. That means that all corporations, uh, you know, the, the education world, scientific community are filled with dyslexics, no doubt. So they need to know this. So part of my goal is to really be able to go out and tell these these corporations or these communities about dyslexia and why they need to know it, why it's so massive. And really, you know, coming back to what we were saying early, the the strength side of things and, and making sure to uh, to leverage this talent and come up with better products and services. But I really think that they could come up with solutions to problems facing the real world. So you really need to get all of these original thinkers in, in, uh, in place at the end of the day. Absolutely. You do. You really do. So I want to close on asking you what your fondest memory has been in the in the ten years that you spent uh, with Disney. Um, obviously, moving to France, moving to Paris, an incredible city, but um, I should imagine a, a quite special place uh, to to ply your trade to to work. That's a toughie. <laughs> I mm-hmm. I think you know yeah this this last ten years have been extremely rich. Um, and it's been an interesting journey professionally and personally because I've had to deal with this dyslexia, you know, as a parent. And I, and I think that's what's been amazing. And, and I've learned this as a parent is that, you know, when you bring your full self to the office, uh, you know, you really can do so much more. And, you know, I was already doing quite well. I was a finance executive. I had been in the film uh, side of the business, consumer products and, and, and retail. I mean, I really had a, a pretty vast uh, career at Disney in terms of the different businesses that I was able to work on. But until I got involved in this project on the social impact, I mean, I never realized how amazing, you know, a a job could be. And I guess, you know, this is really for me such um, the most fondest in that it was such a turning point and it connected my personal life and my professional life and what I was good at. And it really, it was just like all of the stars aligned by getting on that social impact project. And, you know, it kind of goes back to why I want to do this. I think that other people could come forward with similar ideas coming from their personal experiences and have that same aha moment and satisfaction. So it really is this virtuous, virtuous thing to get involved in. That's beautiful. That is the perfect note to end on. Joan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jude. It's been lovely. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, with me, Jude Mutt McGowan. My guest today was Joan Bone. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund. And there are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. 
And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please go rate, subscribe, leave us a little review. It really helps us grow. Thank you.